Welcome to the System Hub Podcast. Hola. Konnichiwa. Guten Tag. Where we interview world-class experts. You have to have a lot of passion for what you're doing. I was fanatical in my 20s. If you could find a way to produce a business that works without you, your life would change like that. Extracting, organizing, and optimizing their best systems and processes for rapid business growth. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome back to the Business Systems Summit. I'm your host, David Jennings, and in this session, we're going to be chatting with Steve Baker, and he's the co-author of the 20th anniversary edition of The Great Game of Business, which is a, a business classic that you've got to read. It was born out of SRC Holdings Corporation, who that company, their, their primary focus is remanufacturing engines of all things, and The Great Game of Business is the educational division that really has developed and fine-tuned over 24 years, the ideas and systems around open book management. This approach ends up giving teams transparency, creates staff engagement, improves financial performance, and has a bunch of flow-on different benefits. What I like most about it, though, is it really teaches this idea for employees to think and act like owners. And it's very much in line with the way that we teach systemology and systemizing business and building a systems-based culture where you're looking to get people to buy in early because people support what it is that they create. That's actually to coin a little phrase that Steve mentioned to me just before we got started. Now, Steve's our guest. In, in addition to working at The Great Game of Business for well over 10 years, he spent two decades in privately held companies dealing with the challenges of trying to help business owners reach their goals without getting the visibility of seeing the business metrics. So he knows better than anyone that you can't improve what you don't measure. And that's why he's all in on the great game of business. So it's with great pleasure that I get to introduce and welcome Steve to the summit. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for including us. We appreciate it. Ah, our pleasure. Now, I know We've got lots that we're going to cover and you're going to share with us the great game of business of mini games, which is a 90 day plan. And I thought maybe as a, a way for us to start, if you can just share with us some of the challenges that you see business owners face that this system aims to solve. And then, yeah, let's go through that process step by step. No, absolutely. Well, one of the things I always like to start out with is that uh, if, if we look at the universals of business owners and folks who are charged with running businesses, the two things we always struggle with is uh, we want to make more money and we want our people to be more engaged and happier and more productive. And most business systems focus on one or the other. On the one side, you have awesome, awesome cultures. You know, you've got bring your dog to work day and beanbag rooms and unlimited vacation. And then over here on the other side, you've got just the metrics, KPIs and, and quotas and cash and all the numbers, numbers, numbers. And the thing is, it's we like to say it's money, it's people, it's both. Because who really generates the numbers in the business? It's the people that are in the business that create the numbers. So we actually ask them to think and act and feel just like the owners of the business do. Here's an interesting thing. There's a guy by the name of Dr. Gary Hamill, um, and he's got a great quote that I just love. Uh, he wrote the book that was called The Future of Management, and he pointed out in his book that came out in 2007 that while technology has exploded, I mean, exponentially grown over the last hundred years, management hasn't changed at all. And Wow. I mean, you go, holy cow, that's right. And the people who created management were actually born in the mid-1800s. So we're going, 
who is coming up with this stuff? You know, so it truly is quite an invention, this management thing, but really hasn't changed that much. So he says, after all years and years of study at Harvard and, and uh, I mean, just going crazy with the stats, he's, and I've got it up here on my board. Uh, it turns out you don't need a lot of top-down discipline when these four conditions are met. Uh, frontline employees are responsible for results. Team members have access to real-time performance data. They have decision authority over the key variables that influence performance outcomes. And there's a, a tight coupling between results, compensation, and recognition. He said that in 2007, a full 24 years after Jack Stack stumbled upon this idea of open book management. And I just think it's so powerful to begin with. So it might be good if it's okay, if I could share the story of SRC with yeah, you. If, if people haven't read the book, like definitely, and we'll talk about getting a, a copy of the book at the end of the session, but I know, yeah, Jack Stack's story is fascinating. It really is something. And I guess a great way to begin is is to think about somebody else. Think about the life of Pi. Have you ever seen this movie? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Visually stunning, right? Just spectacular. So the company that created this for Ang Lee, the director, was called Rhythm and Hughes. They had already won two Academy Awards by the time they had started the work on Life of Pi. The reason I love this story is because it's so incredibly sad, and yet it's a great learning. So when you think about this, they're creating groundbreaking effects, best in the world at everything they do, and they're the envy of the industry. Every artist wanted to work there. Every computer guy wanted to work there because they had the culture. It was the coolest place to work. You really could bring your dog to work, free breakfast, free lunch, free dinners when they were busy, dry cleaning services, LASIK eye surgery stipend. I mean, awesome, right? Yeah. And they won their third Academy Award 13 days after they laid everyone off because they went bankrupt. Is that not horrible? And yeah. that is the SRC story because they were the best in the world at what they did and yet everybody lost their job. At SRC, way back in 83, here in the United States, our economy was in the tank. I'm guessing you weren't probably even born in 1983, but I was. I, was, I remember I was, what it was. I was a couple of years old. So. <laughs> it was a long time ago, and there was a really horrible recession going on. And frankly speaking, the story of SRC is that International Harvester was bleeding $57,000 an hour because they weren't responding to global competition. They were still making products and managing their people the same way they had 100 years prior, this command and control kind of do your job, nothing more, nothing less. And it wasn't getting them any traction in the marketplace because Japan was coming in and saying, hey, we'll beat the market. What do you want in your products? How much do you want to pay for them? How can we make this more attractive for you? So bottom line is when you're losing 60 grand an hour, you've got to cut and cut fast and cut deep. They cut... David, a thousand people a week for two years straight. Wow. Think about that. Over a hundred thousand families lost their livelihood because their employer couldn't respond to competition. So mm-hmm. Springfield, Missouri, there's a little tiny division of International Harvester, again, way back in 83, who was charged with remanufacturing all of those broken down, dirty diesel engines that failed in the fields and on the construction sites of America. And they were the best. They won all the awards, right? Best at, at safety, warranty rate, on-time delivery. Imagine being the best in the world at what you do and lose your job, right? Mm. Life of Pi, SRC. 
And uh, Jack Stack, our founder and CEO still to this day, he was sent down from Chicago from Melrose Park to uh, uh, shut down the factory. He was 29 years old at a $200 a month mortgage and three kids in diapers. And he's like, I don't want to shut this place down. These people want to do the work and they're fantastic. What if we could make a run at it? So he went on an incredible odyssey. He's famous for it, for having the worst corporate buyout in American history. Hmm. He only could scrape together $100,000 from all the people in the factory and International wanted $9 million for the organization. And I mean, that's just financially brain dead. An 89 to one loan shouldn't happen, right? To make a long story short, and uh, here I'll give you the the preview, the audio book that we're going to give you all is The uh, Great Game of Business. And that tells Jack's story in those uh, early days of SRC. He did finally get the loan, but he was turned down 54 times. So 54 banks said, this is a terrible loan. And each time they would say, uh, when are you going to pay the money back? Where's your cash flow statement? What's your business plan? And, and he learned that he was looking at a different scorecard than the bankers were. He was looking at on-time delivery and warranty and tolerances. And they're looking at paying the money back. <laughs> wow, what a crazy idea. So he learned their language. Or, or I was just talking to him yesterday, and we were talking about this very uh, subject and the event that we're uh, at right now. And Jack said, you know, you can tell him. He said, I, I really couldn't believe it. It took almost two years for us to finally get enough knowledge and to understand that we were looking at the wrong scorecard to understand their language and play their game. So he learned the language of the financials. He realized that was the universal language of any business. And he said, this is what we've got to do. So he's reading the Wall Street Journal, finds out Bank of America is taking on riskier loans at that time because they needed the money and they could charge higher interest rates. He says, this is the bank for us. So he <laughs> flies to Oak Brook, Illinois and puts on his wingtips and says, I, I hear your book in bad loans. I got a doozy for you and uh, made the worst corporate buyout in American history, 89 to 1, 8.9 million against $100,000 down. Here's the key. He learned a few things in that process. One was there's one language for any organization, for-profit, not-for-profit, healthcare, government, everybody answers to the financials and they've been around since 1494. 1494, they're 500 years old, they're not going to change. Why aren't we teaching everybody this? And the other thing that he learned was that when you have great technicians, in our case, mechanics, machinists, engineers, they do not want to learn to become accountants. And he had to use the analogy of a game to fool them into learning business without it being some mystical, crazy thing. They actually could embrace it. And the analogy of the game is simple because it's games and business have a common goal. There are rules. There's a scoreboard, in this case, the financials, and a reward for winning. In those early days, it was you get to keep your job. Later, as they turned the company around, it was, hey, maybe we could have a bonus. Maybe we could start another company and you could run it. Maybe we could have a career path, better benefits. And today, we've gone from 119 people to 1,900. And today, we're about 600 million in sales. Every $1,000 back in 83, if you put it in your 401k, because you started one when you were three years old, right? That's right. You got 35,000 bucks today, right, in the U.S. And every $1,000 uh, of SRC stock today is worth $7.6 The power of teaching people business is incredible. That's quite a story. I'm sure you have a, a question or two there. 
Yeah, look, I, I think the biggest takeaway for me, when you, you hear that story, everybody resonates with this idea that you can't improve what you don't measure. And when you think right. about it, where a lot of staff members in many companies operate in the dark or the metrics are held only by the critical few, obviously it makes it very hard for them to to shoot at the target if they can't even see the target, get any sort of feedback or anything like that. I know for for us, and I haven't gone full open book yet, I'm as we go through this particular session, um, it'll be great to to take this and, and take it back to the team. But there, there was definitely a shift I remember, you know, as I started to move from a, that solo entrepreneur, starting to then bring more of a team around me as it sort of started to grow. And I shared particularly the, the financials. I got a COO on and then, you know, there was my accounts lady who then started to get a lot more visibility as she kind of moved into that financial controller position. And just that in the microcosm there of sharing ends up being quite a huge weight lifted from the business owner's shoulders who typically feels like it's everything's on them and they've got no one to talk to. Whereas now we have a weekly discussion with those team members where we're looking at the numbers. We all see them. We know where we're at, what needs to happen and makes it very transparent. There's no, oh, you know, I did this or that or these little sideline stories. It's well, what do the numbers show? Because the numbers right. don't lie and that's the scorecard. So that's one of the reasons why the great game of business has caught my eye because I've only had just a little taste of it and I can already see the results. So I'll, I'll let you walk us through the process, but it's yeah, just great to get an idea that this idea has, has been born out of a real world situation and then developed and improved over the 24 years. This is not like a an idea or a set of systems or tools that Jack just came up with like that. It's this evolution, fine-tuning, constant improvement, and that's how we see great systems get developed. Right. And I do want to clear something up for you too. So we've been practicing this since 1983. So it's 37 years to the day now, and we're talking about 24 or so years, 25 years since the uh, original book came out in 92. So yes. the reason I'm I bring up that is because sometimes people get confused. They say, well, is the great game a system? Is it a book? Is it a company? What is it? Well, it's all those things. It's a methodology, but we are actually the smallest division of SRC. There are 10 different companies and we just help other companies do what SRC has been able to do with this system. So to walk you through it, it's uh, pretty straightforward and I'd like to describe it to you in this way. If you would imagine three interconnecting circles or ovals, if you will, and in the very center would be, this is game theory. Recently, a millennial reporter asked Jack, and Jack is now 70 years old and still extremely active as our working CEO and author and everything else. So this young person asked Jack, they go, how did you get so smart to involve gamification in your business, you know, all those years ago? He's like, I didn't know what it was, you know, a gamification. That's I didn't awesome. know. I just knew people like to do one thing, and yeah. that is universal across every culture, every language. I mean, it, there's one universal human need, and that's to win. Everybody likes to win. So this idea of a game, he said, right at the center of those three circles is the critical number. That's the team goal. We're going to win or lose as a team, and we ain't going to lose. So the critical number represents one thing 
that for the next six to 12 months, not for all time, we're going to go after. In those early days, it was make the bank loan payment, right? He wanted to make sure everybody was aiming their gun at the same target. Later, it became diversification. To this day, we still have critical numbers that range from referrals to diversification for one of our companies. Sometimes it's cash. During the recession, it was all about cash, right? Whoever has cash wins. A lot of people start out with net profit just to say, I'd like to make more money by the end of the year. And if I can, I'll share it with you all. So at the center is a critical number. I did want to mention just one little fine nuance because you really focused, you mentioned with when you think in terms of game around this idea of winning the game. One thing I think the word game also does makes people understand practice is involved. There is failure along the way. Like the ultimate thing is to win the game, but there are going to be points where you're losing against the other side. So it creates this safety net for team members to feel like they can then start to try things and experiment because that's what you do in a game. And it's not the end of the world. If you lose a little point here, the aim is to win the game, but there are steps that happen along. So I think it, it creates a real safe environment that people understand, particularly if you don't have that financial background, oh, we're just playing a game. Games are fun. And that, that's all programmed into just the word game. So, But I'll, I'll let you continue. I thought I'd just articulate that one. I love that because you're picking up the nuance of it. We have to be careful with that too, because there are some people, you know, who are like, but I, you know, business is serious. You know, you can't play a game. It's like, yeah, okay, I get it. But you know, we're a $600 million company. I think we're doing okay. And there's much bigger ones than us playing the great game of business. So let's walk through that, that critical number, the goal of the game. And you can make it as fun or as serious as you want, just like any game, right? I mean, if you're playing a game with your kids, it's all fun and games till you start keeping score, right? <laughs> and then you want to crush them. That's I'm right. Dominate. The first uh, of the circles, the ovals, if you will, you can't play a game. You can't win that goal if you don't know and teach the rules. And that's where the open book part comes in. So I'm going to walk you through these three circles. We call them the, the, the principles. And then I'll walk you through the practices. Yeah. So the principles are know and teach the rules. That's We've got to educate people on what game they're in. Then there's follow the action and keep score. Follow the action and keep scores because if we don't keep score, it's just practice. And then finally, the third circle that also interconnects kind of Venn diagram style with critical number in the middle is if we do all that, if we learn the game and if we follow the action and keep score, by golly, I deserve something. That's what we call provide a stake in the outcome. And that is the what's in it for me. Really, really big here in the States. I'm pretty sure there's some red-blooded Australians that feel the same way, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, and people all over the world can say, yep, I want to win and I want a piece of the action if I work so hard to, to help achieve these goals. So if we break those down, the first one, there's three practices within each of the principles. The first practice, know and teach the rules. First of all, you got to have financial transparency. So you're experiencing that right now. It's a little uncomfortable, No. Yeah, it is at first <laughs> until it becomes liberating. It was at the time, but then we're, we're a good few years into it now. And I look back and I go, can't believe we didn't do that sooner. Right. And so that's what I hope that folks who are watching and listening today will take away is that, yeah, you don't want to be waiting another year or two because you will very soon say, how did we ever operate before? So the thing is, Financial transparency is useless without education. So we say the first practice within the system is financial transparency and education. 
Now, how do you get to that critical number? Because getting to the critical number is one of what we call the practices itself, as well as the center of the game. So the second practice is high involvement planning. Now, high involvement planning, the name says it all. Everybody that uses one of your systems that you have uh, throughout this event will say, well, you know, I do planning. And I and maybe some do annual planning, quarterly planning. Some might even do 10-year planning. We do that. High involvement is the key part, right? Everybody does planning, but how much do you involve your people in that? I mentioned to you before we began that one of the things that differentiates the great game of business from any other operating system is, of course, people support what they help create, but also we build everything. Our plan, some people call them budgets, built from the bottom up, zero-based budgeting. We ask people, first we teach them, right, what market they're in. We talk about it regularly. We have education that's just nonstop because we're trying to teach people to become business people. And in order to do that, you've got to share a ton of data and ask them to get a ton of data. So we actually ask them to participate in the planning process. Easier said than done. And there's a lot to it that we explain in the books. But imagine what it would be like if instead of you having to come up with all the answers, you just had to come up with the questions. And then as a leader, help people move that through the process. It'd be a lot different, wouldn't it? It's a different conversation. So then finally, getting to the critical number and saying, for the next six to 12 months, this is what we're going to focus on. And everybody's going to learn this. So I'm going to give you a quick example of critical number there. Remember I said the first critical number was make the bank loan payment. Well, when I do this at like the Inc. 5000 conference, I'll ask people, I go, what do you think? After hearing SRC's story, what do you think the first critical number was? And they'll say, it's cash, it's sales, it's production, it's warranty, you know, all correct. But how do you get all those desperate numbers that are so spread out? How do you get them all right here? You tie it to something people can understand. And everybody in that plant knew that if they didn't make their house payment or their car payment, the bank would come take it away. And that got them thinking really hard about how to make SRC successful. And so things, people treat things differently when they own them, right? And I'm not just talking about equity. I mean, just the mental ownership of, holy cow, I'm responsible for this job. It's not stack. It's not international. It's not this guy, that guy. It's us. And they hold one another accountable. So now we've got financial transparency and education. We've got the uh, high involvement planning all the way down to the critical number. The second circle, this is follow the action and keep score. This is where we bring it to life. And so this is literally where we take that plan and we put it on a board and we literally have boards that you can go check out on our YouTube channel. You know, you can see huddle videos. This is where we're huddling once a week. We're literally going through a simplified financial statement and building it together. Now, what's interesting is I mentioned to you before that the financial statements, specifically the income statement and balance sheet, are 500 plus years old, originally formulated and popularized by a guy named Luca Pazzioli, a Franciscan friar in Venice. Now, this guy, let me tell you, I mean, he had some time on his hands because he was a friar. He was celibate. He all, all he could think about was accounting and architecture. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Probably just, I just eliminated our entire Italian uh, <laughs> listenership. The thing is, that's what's really important is just think about it. He comes up with the income statement and the balance sheet, which we still use exactly as they were all those years ago. The only thing he missed was one extra column. And you can relate to this because you're doing some open book right now. That extra column would be for someone's name. So when we build the income statement, what we do is we, we say sales. What do you think is going to happen by the end of the month? And we listen. 
right? Our job as leaders is not to have the answers, it's to have the right questions. So we listen and they say, well, I think this could happen. My best guess, my best forecast. And then we say, okay, if that happens in sales, what's going to have to happen to cost a good sold? And then we're going to calculate margin and all of this. Then what's below the line? Expenses. And I mean, I don't care. Nobody gets off the hook. Accounting. Tell me what's happening with AR. You know, all these things can happen. We build this financial statement together. And the thing is, at the beginning, it's rough, right? We call it forecasting, not forecasting because it's, it's pretty messy. But man, when you start doing it weekly and everybody knows you can't get out of the meeting and you have a line item, you you own that. Whatever line you're closest to, right? Whether it's business development or or making that thing happen. If you're a software developer, it could be, you know, lines of code written or first program pass through. I don't even know what I'm talking about, right? Because I'm not a software guy, but he is and he knows what it is. So I want the expert to be the expert. All we're doing is teaching him how that turns into a financial number. So our huddles last about a half hour, rarely more than 40 minutes because we're going boom, boom, boom. It's not an HR meeting. It's not a safety meeting. It's not anything else but the numbers. And we just built what the end of the month looks like. And that's one of the second circle practices is huddling and forecasting. Forecasting is looking forward to the end of the month. And then you have control of your own destiny. That's beautiful because if it's the second week of the month and we lose a big customer, what can we do? right? We can still watch our costs. We can make some moves. We can go after, pull up a contingency, you know, jump into a trap door, whatever we've got built into the system. But most people run their businesses looking in the rear view mirror saying, well, this is what happened last quarter and we're going to have to make some layoffs and uh, we're not going to be able to give raises. Instead, we empower people to think forward. And here's what's going to happen. Here's a, a gimme for you. When you go to people who are really good at their jobs and they've been pretty comfortable, and you say, I want you to tell me what, what you think will happen by the end of the month. And later, when you get good, the end of the quarter, tell me what the end of the year is going to look like. And they'll go, what am I, a fortune teller? I can't believe you want me to do it. You're right. That's <laughs> the way it is. I did that when I first came here. But the thing is, you go, look, safe space here. Don't worry about it. All I want is your opinion. Tell me what you think. Your job is not to predict the future. Your job is to influence the future. Hmm. That's probably one to write down, folks. It's pretty profound. <laughs> so your job isn't to predict the future, it's to influence it. And we just tap everybody's intellectual capacity. And after you do it for a while, you get into a rhythm where you literally are starting to talk to one another in a different way. Man, what do you think is going to happen? Today, I had Rhonda Chapman come in and ask me what my T&E expenses were going to be by the end of the month because I travel a lot, right? And she has to go around. She owns the travel and expense line for everybody in our company, uh, our division of SRC. So she's actually forecasting by asking us what our forecasts are. It's powerful. And all that gets distilled into one number every Monday at 1.30 central time here in our huddle room. So there's a few key things that I, I love just about this approach. Firstly, a lot of people think when they're building a dashboard, the, the question is, you know, what numbers do we put on there? How do we monitor? I think linking it back to a P&L makes perfect sense because that that is the scorecard. So oftentimes when people are looking at numbers, they're just looking for, it's almost like derivations or things that might make up that number. But I think starting off with that number makes sense because that's ultimately the number that you want to be managing and then assigning that responsibility to individuals also very very key because then you know you, you, 
someone then, if no one's responsible or, or multiple people are responsible, then no one's really responsible. And then it's, oh, I thought they were going to do it. Oh, I thought they were going to do it. And it's much easier to kind of pass the buck, whereas I think that very clear and then getting your cadence right for how often you're actually discussing and talking about that enables you to spot things much earlier. That's one thing I found as we started doing our weekly practice with looking at the financials, we could see the the trends. And on the micro, you sometimes, you know, it's it's hard to get visibility, but once you start to stack these together and then you start to see trends and you get a feel for what numbers look like and, oh, that was a quiet week. Oh, that was good. Oh, the expenses seem a bit high. Then it makes it so much easier when something is off to then drill in and go, okay, well, what makes up that number hey that number is down well what what actually influences that number well now we can start to affect it so it's almost like your attention gets drawn to the areas that need it and then you just skip over the ones oh that that's pretty solid for the moment look our attention needs to go here and now let's talk about how we improve that so it's yeah i I think there's a lot built into what you said and making it very simple and game-like which i love but it's it's very deep in its um thought i think a lot a lot of times the very simple is born out of complex and then you just keep chiseling away and that's when you get something down so refined and simple that's when you've got something that is oftentimes the most well thought out yeah and simple doesn't mean easy i'm not going to say this is something that you just fall into but but the thing is, we're not talking about gap financials. Here in the U.S., that's generally accepted accounting principles. It's not for the accountants. It's for us as a team to say, are we winning or losing? And we're doing it in a future-looking fashion. I just gave you an example of Rhonda, who owns the travel and expense number. She has a whole scorecard of her own that she goes through, and she has my name and Rich's name and all the team members and all the coaches that are out there running around helping folks. The thing is, is if I were to have cascaded scorecards myself as the leader, Mm. you know what Rhonda would have done? She's like, this sucks. I hate this whole thing. Who would have given me travel? But instead, with line item ownership, it's actually kind of interesting. It's it's sort of like this. True story. And you just need to hear it from from the guy who, who sinned the most, right? So travel used to be my number. And I was terrible at it. Because I was always gone and I was, I'd come into the huddle and blah, 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 blah. Now I own no different lines, right, that I'm closer to. But it turns out we said, what's, what's going on? Why is this forecast always off? And I, I had lots of excuses, but other people started to say, well, you know, in all fairness, he is gone and we probably need someone who's here all the time in Springfield to, to do this. And, and Rhonda's like, well, I can do that. In fact, I can, I even help book some of the travel. Da, 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 da. So she took ownership. She's close to the number and she's, it's hers now. You know, if I tried to tear the scorecard away from her, it would be difficult to do because that's ownership, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that all the way down that income statement, a simplified income statement, just a common sense financial, a picture of what the company will be like at the end of the month. When you get good, go to the end of the quarter. When you get really good, go to the end of the year and just keep updating it weekly. The reason for the frequency, you mentioned the cadence, is because I've had so many people who said, well, we, we practice open book management and we do, well, you know, great game. And I'm going, how's it going for you? Well, you know, it's not like it used to be. I said, well, tell me what's going on. And the two things, the two things that they always mess up on are, well, we're having our huddle once a month now. We got too busy. Now, 
what I always say is, well, when was the last time you talked to your wife or your partner, right? Your significant other. It's like, if you talk once a month, that is not going to be a great relationship. How do you think your numbers are going to be? And they go, well, okay. Yeah. But it's a commitment, right? And we'll, do I pay them? Do I not pay them? I'm like, you won't be able to afford not to have this huddle once you get going on it. So to keep moving along here, we've got no one teach the rules, follow the action and keep score. So within that one, just to recap, we've got the, the huddles themselves. We've got the scorecards, which you're going to build in a uh, common sense kind of financial way. And then the forward forecasting is really an important part of that. So there's your three practices there. And then the, the last of the of the principles provide a stake in the outcome. The practices within there range from rewards and recognition. So that's bonus plans. And we're kind of famous for our bonus plan because of course our education program is tied to the critical number. Our accountability program is tied to the critical number. Those are the first two circles. And then our incentive program is tied to the critical number. Everything's tied to a central goal. Holy crap. How could that possibly work? (laughs) It's too common sense for a lot of people, but we only make we, we make sure that the company is sound first. One of the other things that Jack learned, remember I told you the universal need to win and that there was this universal language of the financials. One of the other things that he learned along this path, this journey over the last 37 years is that it's not about the stuff you make and it's not about the stuff you sell, the services you provide. The company is the product because everything you want as an employee, job security, benefits, bonuses, overtime, whatever, ultimate vacation, days off, all that kind of stuff. It all comes from a growing, profitable, vibrant business. Well, that means you've got to build a company that can generate cash, can make money over a long period of time. That is a great company. So Jack just said, why don't we stop teaching people just the metrics of great products and services? Why don't we teach them how to build a great company? And that's why business is so important. The reason it's it's tying back to provide a stake in the outcome is that the rewards and recognition portion of this in our bonus plan, we don't pay it all out at once. We protect the company first because we know that's where job security comes from and our raises and bonuses and all that good stuff, career path. It only happens if the company's sound. So first quarter, we do it what we call David a 10, 20, 30, 40. So the first quarter, I'll try to do it backwards here. We only pay 10% of the potential bonus pool available in that first quarter. Second quarter, 20%, third quarter, 30%, fourth quarter, 40%. Not only is it progressive though, it's also cumulative. So we could have a really crappy first quarter and second quarter, but year to date, make up our numbers in the third quarter. The thing is that 10, 20, 30, 40 protects the company because we could have a rough first quarter, second quarter, third quarter. And no matter where you're at, by the time you've Well, one of our SRC companies had three max bonus quarters last year, and then a big customer pulled out at the last minute, totally tanked their year. Fourth quarter was nothing, but they had not paid out so much in bonuses, even maxing all year, that they could still protect the company and they still came out profitable. So the company is there for them again this year. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful. So stake in the outcome. Rewards and recognition, that includes everything from your recognition program, awards, bonuses, as I've just mentioned. Another practice that we have there is ownership. Some companies, now it's rare, in the U.S., only 7,000 companies out of 7 million share broad-based employee ownership. We happen to be employee-owned, so we're believers, but you don't have to share equity to play the great game of business, but it is one of our practices for the next level kind of company. 
The last practice that I mentioned was is mini games, and that's where it takes us into our deeper dive in the minutes that we have left. Yeah, so it feels like we've laid the foundations with the principles and then having basically the some three core practices, let's say, underneath each of those. And then that critical number, which you happen to put in that first principle, but then you also talked about it in the Venn diagram, it being the center point as well. So Right. Yeah. So there's a, a little diagram in your workbook, folks, is uh, the, the Venn diagram with critical number in the center. Yeah. So it feels like, and maybe this is where mini games now leads in because you need to get very clear on what that critical number is. And I mean, we talked about all of the line items in the, the P&L. So, but if, we, if we're going to distill this down to the critical number, I'm assuming, is that kind of part of the mini game? So in reality, what we'll use mini games for is to drive the critical number. Yes. Another tool that I put into the workbook is to, uh, I'll give you a good example. Imagine building that simplified income statement with your team. A lot of people say, well, Steve, how do I start Monday? And uh, I'm like going, look, you know, you can't learn the whole system overnight. You can definitely read the book and all this and we can coach you. But, you know, you need to start somewhere rather than planning the hell out of it. Right. I'm a great planner. My biggest problem is with any program, whether it be fitness or business or anything else, I got to take the first step. I'm just admitting I have issues, you know? but I think everybody has some issues. What I like to do is I, I need a step. So here's what I like to do first is mini games is simply a miniature version of the three circles we just described. So yeah. let's just say your big critical number is net profit and you have just built a simplified income statement with your team. Just prior yes. to diving into that, can you give us some guidance on how to pick the critical number to focus on? Like that's the piece. Is it, is it always, because it's not always net profit. You talked nope. about those critical numbers are changing. Like how do you pick it? How often is it changing? And then that'll kind of then lead into the mini game, which, you know, gives us a good run at it. You bet. You bet. Well, of course, that's a whole workshop in itself, but I will give you the, the really key factors and, and then I'll give you what Jack Stack's advice is to everybody. First of all, we say that a critical number is the one thing that matters most. It's the one thing, if we don't do this, if we do not address it, it could take the company out. So think about SRC's first critical number. If they didn't make the bank loan payment, the bank would come take the company away from them. Another great critical number that people use is uh, going to be a profit-based number because if we don't make profit, how are we going to fund anything, much less a bonus program? So when you think about profitability, there's lots of different kinds of bottom lines, right? So an employee-owned company might look at EBITDA or something like this because that's what a valuator would look at. So now we're, look, we're in the same game as our valuator, so we can drive our stock price. Another company might just look at net profit and say, you know what, all I want to do is make more money than last year. But what I want to do is I want to give people, look for the weakness in your business. If you have one big customer, guess what's going to happen? Something's going to happen with that customer. Just It always does. So diversification is clearly your issue. So you could spend a whole year teaching everybody in the company and asking them to participate in ways to find other diversified business. What's really hard to do, though, David, is to do that when you're having a good year. It's really easy to say, holy crap, we got to diversify because they just dumped us because that's what you got to do. You got to be smart enough to do it before, right? Yeah. Looking outward and saying, if we were to be trying to sell this company, what would be the sticking point for the buyer? 
that's a good way to look at it is to say, what is in the way of somebody really just grabbing onto this thing? And it might be that you're not generating enough cash. It might be that I mentioned referral rates. It's crazy. You can go out and get this data from anyone. You, you can say, well, how many referrals uh, should we be getting as a consulting company? Well, if we don't know that number, it's probably that we're not getting enough and we're just afraid to look at those numbers. But here's a trick. Jack always says, first of all, if there's something that keeps you up at night as a business owner, that's probably it. Or if there's something pissing you off, that's probably a good critical number, right? It might be utilization number. It could be a productivity number. It's going to be pretty obvious your first year, we think. If you're stuck, though, go to your bank and ask for an outrageous sum of money, and they will tell you where you suck the most. (laughs) And when they do, they'll say, here's your numbers. Here's your competition's numbers, and they're better at margin, at profit, at cash generation. Just some key factors. And then you just pick one that you know, if I do this, it will move a lot of other things. If I can pick something that will move a lot of things, that's a good critical number. Now, I will tell you this. When you get good at it, you'll always probably have a profitability-based number because you've got to make money that funds it all. You're probably going to have two critical numbers, and the second one will be strategic. So that's where you see people picking a profit number and a diversification number. Uh, I just got off the phone with someone today in Atlanta. They did new product rollouts and EBITDA. In other words, they wanted to make sure that they had the profit side covered with EBITDA, but they wanted to make sure that the new products that they were developing were actually getting to the marketplace. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, and two questions. One is, it sounds like the frequency is you run with a critical number for a year and potentially, I'm assuming you don't want to go more than two critical numbers because I'm imagining the whole purpose is to focus, but the idea of having the strategic, you're kind of saying, yeah, look, it's okay. You know, if we we monitor what that bottom line looks like, but there might be also some strategic focus as well. Absolutely. So frequency is a good question because there are companies that go, well, we've, we've just been doing profit for 10 years. The thing is, they're probably not really looking, they're not doing high involvement planning where they're really, really looking at the company hard, like with a very cold eye and saying, "Mm, yeah, we've got some warts here, guys. You need to be able to lay it out and say, where are we not competing very well? Because that's the thing that will take us out. In the beginning, my advice would be start with something profit-based. Just teach people how dang hard it is to make money and generate cash because you're not just trying to do this for you. In fact, you're trying to do this for the company. And so if you were to say, let's just say profit. I mean, I'm going to throw this at you and just see what you think because you're in another country. Do you happen to know what Walmart makes bottom line? No idea. So past three years, average 2.4 cents on the dollar. Not a lot. But you can imagine because it's, you know, statins. Yeah. Yeah. Sell it cheap. It's all about velocity, you know. Now, what do you think the average U.S.-based company makes across 212 industries. Just take a stab at it. 10 cents in the dollar? Yeah, which would be great. It's six and a half as the median. What do you think the average American employee thinks their company makes? Wouldn't surprise me if they're thinking like 50 cents in the dollar. Exactly. You are crushing this quiz. Yeah, think about that. Six and a half cents versus 36 cents is what the uh, research says. That's crazy. So I actually have a slide that I just show people and I say, did you know this? Because half the people that work for you don't even know how hard it is to make money. Most of them will say, 
why do you get up in the morning? You know, in remanufacturing, making a nickel on the dollar is a pretty good day. And a lot of businesses are like that. So what we do is we teach people how hard it is to make money. Then we start to build an income statement and look for line item ownership. And then we look for opportunities to drive, let's say, critical numbers profitability of some sort. I want to look for line items and say, what could you guys do in this department to move profitability in the right direction? And so somebody's going to say, well, I don't really make an impact. I'm in maintenance. Really good example. You know, the great game of business is not just for for for-profit businesses. We've Jack's new book called Change the Game is uh, all about these stories from not-for-profits and from hospitals and uh, governments. And one of his favorite stories is these two janitors, maintenance workers at our county government here in Greene County, had been working there for 20 years. They started to play the great game of business a couple of years ago and opened things up. And these two janitors are looking at each other and they're going, well, I wonder, I wonder if we can do anything. I don't know. I don't know. You know, and they have this stigma about them, right? County workers, like somebody's leaning on a shovel, not doing any work. And these guys go, we can make it. I know we can make a difference. And they went into their supply warehouse and they looked at the chemicals and this great big drum, 55 gallon drum. And on the label, guy bends over and reads it. He says, oh, it says dilute six to one. First year, they saved the county $10,000. I mean, that's line item ownership. No one ever asked them to think before. They just said, do your job, nothing more, nothing less. And now they're being asked to think like a business person. And that's a county government. So that's a good example of where mini games come in is you take that line item ownership and you point it at, well, what could we do differently to improve the business? Because what we can actually do is drive the overall performance of the company, which drives my incentive plan, right? The 10, 20, 30, 40. So what's really powerful about it is, and I think just a, a top level touch on mini games would probably yeah. be wise. Imagine you go through, and you're going through this right now, David, and everybody that's listening probably can understand this is you probably have, you know what, if you're listening to this at all, I bet you already care about people. I'm just going to make a, a wild guess because if you're trying to improve things, you're probably not just the stingy, badass capitalist that I you know, assume you might be, or you also care about people because you know that they change the numbers in the business. So you go, I've been pretty open. I've been pretty, pretty transparent. I'm teaching them about the business. Just hand them their adult card for the first time in their life. As kids, we protect them. Then in school, we protect them. And then we go into the workplace and now bosses protect us from the bad news. You know what? This is the way it's going to be. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to ask you to help. And you know what? We're going to win because we have a saying around here. It's one of our higher laws of business. It's pretty easy to stop one guy, pretty hard to stop a hundred. So the cool part is, what if we could have the collective wisdom of the crowd? What if we could gather that intelligence and that discretionary energy? Well, mini games are a great way to do it because imagine those three circles again coming together, but in microcosm, a smaller way, and using the critical number there, the center of that mini game for one department. So you pick a department. This is completely unrehearsed as yep. evidenced by earlier quizzes. You tell me a department. I'll try to come up with a mini game. Yeah, let's pick a hard one. <laughs> I'll pick a hard one. I want you to do whatever you got to do, I'll baby. HR, because HR is one of those things where people feel like the people, sometimes it's hard to relate down to numbers because it's a bit fuzzy. So let's, let's pick it. HR. And not only do I love that it's HR, but that you guys say H because that's so awesome. (laughs) I mean, really. So here's the thing. 
I love that you picked that because it's a cost center to everybody else in the world. It's a cost center. So is accounting, right? There's so many things, R&D. But HR, here's the thing is right now, there is a war for talent. In Springfield, Missouri, unemployment is 2.2%. Our critical number for the next five years at SRC is retention. So you just picked one that I can speak to from personal experience because what does HR got to do with the success of the business? I'm telling you the companies that will be dominant in the marketplace worldwide in the next 10 years will be those that have the most dominant workforce, meaning the smartest, most engaged people that you can find, they will tear it up and everyone else is going to be scrambling to figure things out. So what can HR do? What would be a mini game? Well, first of all, I'd say, I'd approach it this way and say, guys, what do you think you can do to help us make this a more successful company? And then I'm going to shut up, right? I've got my hand over my mouth because we shouldn't have the answers. We should have the questions. They're the ones who have HR or uh, HRSI credits and all this sort of, they're professionals at people. So tell me what we can do. Well, I've learned in this last year that HR is different now, right? We've had to split ours into kind of a compliance function and then there's sort of the people function. And so there's all this compliance stuff. They could do a bunch of things to make sure that we have programs in place to, uh, to make sure we avoid any problems that would have been unforeseen. Then on this people side, there's all kinds of things like we've really invested in our EAP program, which is an employee assistance program. We've really ramped up. We're self-insured. We've really ramped up our benefit structure to show that our benefits are worth, now this is U.S. dollars, $4.80, I think it is, per hour in benefits. Well, now we can compete totally differently. We're in the the world headquarters of Bass Pro Shops and of O'Reilly Automotive here in Springfield. People can get a job across town that pays more, but does it, right? So they can go to trade... They could make a mini game around, look at, we're going to go to more job fairs. We're going to go and work with the, uh, the technical colleges and the community colleges. And I mean, think about it, David, our jobs are around engines. This, this is not sexy work. We're fighting to find good people. So we really have to educate folks. So their mini game could become their critical number in HR could be retention rate. That could be too big. We might want to go more narrow. We might want to say that it's actually number of interviews number of contacts. And the thing is, I can't tell you what that measure is. What I would do as a leader is I would ask them to come up with the ideas and they would have to explain it to me and be an expert. And then we together could say, is it something that we can influence in the next 90 days? Is it something that will drive the overall success of the business? Will we be able to affect a change in a system, a process, or a behavior? In other words, something that sticks long after the minigame is over. Does that make sense? That's a really big takeaway yeah, right you, there. You're speaking my language right there. Cause that's, I mean, that's what systems thinking is. It's how do we create this change that then lasts well beyond. So, cause you really only want to, as a business owner, and if we're thinking about all team members as business owners, you only want to solve a problem once and then yes. get it solved and have it perpetually solved. So you can now go solve another problem rather than solving the same problem over and over. So definitely speaking my language. Yeah, see, you've got it. That's the key on a big critical number or a small critical number is can we fix something that needs fixing and have it stay fixed? Yeah. So a system, a process, a behavior so that we actually can change something. Some of my favorite HR games that I've seen in other companies, now we've 
coached through all these years, I mean, for decades now, uh, thousands and thousands of companies. But my favorite ones are where you have a convert. In other words, a person who goes, I can't, you know, I can't play the great game of business. I'm in the people business, not the numbers, you know, right? They put up the wall. And then when you break down the wall by helping them understand they do have one of the biggest impacts ever on the game and they go, oh, I see, I am actually appreciated and I'm building the business. And, and now with employees so difficult to locate and find and keep, we really have to compete well. So long story short is some of my favorite ones are around these things like figuring out what the benefits are worth and creating over that 90 day period, a package that is so attractive they can use it over and over again for potentially years to come. Yeah, that makes very good sense. What I'd, I'd love to see now, maybe just as a way to kind of close out, if you've got another example of a, a mini game that you've been able to see run all the way through, so thinking maybe even like frontline staff and, and how we can engage an employee, empower them to monitor this number that then it has a real impact in the business. This is a really good one that will tie together critical number, financial transparency and education, keeping score, the whole thing, all the way down to line item ownership, mini games, et cetera. There's a uh, restaurant chain down in Austin, Texas. I don't know if you know this, but the tagline for Austin, Texas is keep Austin weird, right? So everybody's cool and hip. And when I go down there, they're like (laughs) square and (laughs) It's really funny because uh, they have seven restaurants and I got a, I was very fortunate to be their coach as they were implementing the game. And um, what I remember most is uh, there was a guy uh, by the name of Matt and he was a basically a frontline supervisor, you know, during the, uh, the day shift. And uh, his whole thing was he really wasn't very engaged around stuff. We got a great video on our YouTube channel about this that they created actually. And uh, Matt tells his story and he goes, you know, I took line item ownership of what they call small wares. So this is where he was, he was forecasting the numbers on plates, uh, knives, forks, spoons, you know, small stuff like this. And he found out that while there were standards set for every other area of the restaurant, bacon had a standard, lettuce, right? So much bread would be kept in the restaurant, no, no standards for spoons knives, forks. He said, I'm going to set the standard, what they call a par. I'm going to set par for this. So Matt does it. He starts counting spoons because he has to know how many we got. He looks at orders and he goes, holy cow, we're missing a lot of spoons. And now he's getting engaged. He goes, wait a minute, this is my line. What's going on? And he finds out they're losing 150 spoons a week. This is in one restaurant. Hmm. He says, well, spoons are like, and I'm going to use some rough numbers here, but like five bucks a dozen. Not much, right? So who cares? And when we told this story to other restaurants, as we would go roll out at other restaurants, I would have Matt come because first of all, I'm the square and he's the cool guy with tats all up and down his arms, you know, and he was telling his story. He says, but it made a lot of difference to me because it was my line item. I said, there's something wrong. Where are all the spoons going? And turns out people were just throwing them away. They were too busy, right? They'd scrape off a plate. It would end up in the trash. Well, when he did the math, he goes, wait a minute. 150 spoons, seven restaurants. That's like 21 grand a year. Holy cow. And then he does the math further and he says, if I can figure out a process that will stick, right? So he starts to put together this mini game idea of how can I make this? So uh, there's some great stories within the story, but long story short is uh, ideas came out of the woodworks. People were like going, can we put magnets in the top of the 
uh, trash cans. And they did. And, you know, spoons would stick to the side. And as he went from restaurant to restaurant, he could teach and he took great pride in it. You know, so you got a guy who was pretty disengaged, not very, you know, whatever. And he gets other people engaged like this means something. Well, it turns out their bonus plan was based on profitability. So his mini game was driving $21,000 of savings over a year, right? Well, if you do the math at 10 cent profitability, that means they had to sell $210,000 worth of pancakes to offset the spoon loss they were previously incurring. So they called him Spoon Man from then on, right? So his little mini game, the idea of, hey, if we can do this, we'll share desserts. You know, we'll have very small rewards, just a microcosm of the great game. But he understood that there was a bigger picture that drove the big critical number. One of my favorite stories. What I love about this um, approach as well, it, it really is systems thinking at its best. And, and a mini game effectively evolves into a system or a process. And I just see business as a collection of systems and processes. And usually every problem in business is either because you've got a poorly defined system or not documented and there's not enough attention on it. So by simply focusing in on that area, by developing a game, you then figure out the best way to solve it and then you capture that as a solution and then that just becomes part of the way that you do business. And I know as you start to grow, typically the, the biggest resistance for uh, adopting systems thinking and, and methodology is usually, oh, I've always done it this way. It comes from your existing staff. So why do I have to change? So I think it, what this does is it does two things. One, um, it gets the staff engaged. And you talked about it, and I flagged it right at the start in your intro, that idea of if someone's engaged and involved in it, they really start to take ownership of it. So it's, it's a way to address um, the biggest challenge of adopting systems thinking, which is getting that engagement from the staff and having them take ownership of that outcome. And now they're personally invested in it. So it addresses that. And then it also addresses, once you've got that system solution, any new staff member that comes on, now that's all they ever know. So you don't get any resistance from new staff because, oh, that's just the way that we do things here. The way we do things here. That's right. And, and the thing is, you get a culture whether you like it or not. So you better create the one you want. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Look, this is such a, a, a deep topic and there's so many parts to the great game of business. So I think the best thing for us to do now, I know you've put together a very comprehensive workbook and I'm going to link that underneath this video. Um, you've also put together some other cool little options for our attendees to get a free copy of the audio book and, right. and we'll the link over to that. Yep. So, yeah, yep. I, I think, I don't know if there are any final points that you wanted to cover off and we'll just make sure that we, we point people in the right direction. One, they can download that workbook straight away. Two, they can go and opt in to get an audio copy of the book, as will I. And I don't know if you've got any final three points of, of how they can find more about your great work. You bet. You bet. Um, I, so here's the shameless plug, right? So the uh, original book, The Great Game of Business, that's what we're going to share with you as the audio, as, uh, as you pointed out. I did want to let folks know that Jack has written a new book. It's called Change the Game. And it's called Saving the American Dream by Closing the Gap Between the Haves and the Have-Nots. Now, what's interesting is these are the stories about how the great game of business has been transformative in people's lives because once you teach them business, 
it applies at home. And we believe when people do better at work, they do better at home. And when they do better at home, they do better in their community because this is stuff they can do at their church or with their soccer team. I mean, their school, it, it's crazy because we've got people who, you know, Jack just says, you know, think about all the blue collar millionaires we've created. And it's not about demeaning blue collar work. It's not that at all. It's about empowering and saying, what if you gave the 99% the secret language of the one? And that is really the true power. It just happens to be we're the only ones doing it, meaning business, right? Government ain't going to fix it. Economists can't fix it. Education's not fixing it. It's up to us. Every listener out there, it's up to us. Businesses are the new teachers. And so we're passionate about that. And then Rich Armstrong and I, the president of The Great Game, and I have written uh, Get in the Game. And this is the 10 steps of implementation. So here's your deep dive that goes even further. And of course, we're always here to help. I did want to give you this parting thought. What I love about this so much is it's changed my life. It's taken an artist who who worked for family-owned manufacturing companies his whole life and never really understood why they all failed. (laughs) And it wasn't my fault. (laughs) But but I come to SRC and it's like, wait a minute, we're going to teach you business. We're going to create a business personality. I'm like, no, no, good God, no. And, And now I'm going, holy cow, I wish I would have learned it when I was 20. So I want you to think about great game is, you know, you said it best. It is, it is deep and there is so much more to it. Think of it as this operating system that can hum along as you uh, teach people business. And then it fits so beautifully with so many of the systems that you already fell in love with. Anything that, that I can think of lean. If you think about it as a computer operating system, lean plugs right in as a great app, scrum, agile, right? I mean, just plug them in. If you're looking for a way to engage people, the thing that Great Game adds is that ownership, that idea that I can actually make a difference, I can win, and that, oh my gosh, I do matter. There's, I, there's something about what I do that matters, and I didn't know it before. So it's just so empowering, and I've personally seen it change so many lives, including my own. I, I hope everyone will take advantage of it. Yeah, perfect. Well, a big thank you for your time, Steve. Very generous with your knowledge and and wisdom. I'll make sure I pop all the links underneath and I know a lot of people are going to get a lot from this session. Well, thanks for having me. We've had a great time. You've just been listening to the System Hub Podcast. Remember, we've documented this system for you so you can literally swipe and deploy it within your business. Head to www.systemhub.com forward slash podcast to download it now. 